today on Never Was a Gamer. Time to play the game. Time to play the game. <laughs> Welcome to Never Was a Gamer. It's time to play the game. <laughs> Apparently so. It's time. It's time. We made it. Yep. Uh, I'm Michelle, and I'm here, as always, with that old light in the dark, the bonfire that records my progress <laughs> for eternity, Dimitri. If I ever provide you the sort of reassurance and peace of mind... <laughs> That the bonfire provided me. I'm doing a good job. Can I say you have not so far? <laughs> but I'm hoping one of these days. I'm gonna, I'm gonna try. Okay. But okay. I need you in my corner for this. This yes. is the big one. This is what the last what eleven games have yep. been working towards. This is, I guess, we're gonna call it a, maybe a season finale. Mm-hmm. This is where we see if you're a real gamer or not. <laughs> the ultimate test. <laughs> we did it. We made it to a From Software game. A Hell thing yeah. that has been bothering Michelle for years. I got some shit to say about this. <laughs> and we'd been going back and forth whether we're going to do Dark Souls, whether we're going to do Bloodborne, whether we're going to do a different Dark Souls. We settled on Dark Souls. Yep, the first for the clarity. First. Dark yep. Souls 1. Yeah, I think it just makes sense to start at the beginning given some of the themes we've been chasing for this entire and uh, it's not podcast. Quite the beginning because there was Demon, Demon Souls. Demon Souls was first. And I mean, from Software has a longer lineage of games that are, you know, spiritual precursors to sure. these. Yeah, and really it was between Dark Souls and Bloodborne that we were debating. And I think that even though maybe you're more immediately drawn to the aesthetic of a Bloodborne, mm-hmm. that it makes sense to start with Dark Souls, largely because I think even if you get through Bloodborne, it'll always be kind of itching at your in the back <laughs> of your mind that you haven't beaten Dark Souls. See to or me, play Dark Souls. To me, their Bloodborne is completely a Souls game. Like and I don't. Is it easier? Is that why? That that's hard to say because I think I found it easier, but only because I'd already played. Okay. Like they become easier subsequently, right? Like once sure, you sure, sure, sure. figure out the rhythm of one, you can kind of carry those skills over into into the other okay. games. I think my theory as to why, like, because you kind of made the final call. I'm good with it, <laughs> but you kind of made the call. I think you're hoping that I really like this and that I pick up Bloodborne voluntarily. I think you think I'm that's, more likely yes, to go play Bloodborne yes. like, on my own. I think you're more likely to yeah to go to Bloodborne after this than to go to this after Bloodborne. Okay. And I think this is I think Dark Souls is really worth experiencing. You know what? I take that as a vote of confidence that this is going to be fine, and I'm going to come out the other side, and I'm going to be positive about it. And again, I say that as someone who, as you know, literally put this game in the garbage. Yeah, <laughs> we'll get into later. <laughs> That's not a euphemism. <laughs> <laughs> that also brings up the fact that you did watch me play this a little bit because you did see me put this thing in the garbage. Yep. So you know some things about it. I mean, you know some things from watching bits and pieces of me play it, and you know some things clearly from it being in the air. I know some things about it because literally no one will <laughs> shut the hell up about these games. Like, I, I feel like in some ways, this is probably the game that I know the most about of this whole season going into it. I mean, it makes sense because in a it way. came out once you are invested in games yeah that's true or i guess dark souls kind of came out as you were getting back in and then you've seen you know the series and the souls born genre quote-unquote grow over that time and and yeah really dominate a lot of the conversation yeah <laughs> that's putting it mildly yeah so i mean th- on the lines of what i already know about this i mean it's probably we're saying at the top that one of the defining features of these games i think is that they're difficult <laughs> like 
that's sort of a leading characteristic. I know that uh, one of the specific signatures of this style is that you have these really uh, outlandish, sort of outsized, overpowered bosses that you have to learn how to read their attack patterns and really figure out how to work the fight with each of them. They're very distinctive. Um, right. So, you know, difficulty and the boss fights. And I think those with scale are scale and and yeah. Yeah. And I think those are if you ask kind of the quote unquote average person on the street who might have heard of these games, what they know, I think, yeah, that they're supposed to be hard and that they're known for their bosses. Yeah. I also know partially growing out of those two things. I know this is a, a peak no shame in cheesing game. <laughs> like, I think this is one where even people who generally are like not that keen on cheesing are like, oh, you got to do it in in Souls games. <laughs> so you find that appealing? Well, I was going to do it anyway, so I'm just okay, glad good. that I won't have any approbation from have anyone. No, that's a house rule. Yeah, and I mean, I hinted at at the top with the intro, but I know about the bonfire and souls system where um, you collect souls for killing guys, and that's sort of what you use to upgrade your stats and stuff, but you have to make it to a bonfire to save and do that. And if you die before then, you lose all the souls you collected. So that's part of the stakes, I think, is like... How much am I care? Like, as you're carrying a bigger bundle of useful stuff, you're more vulnerable. Okay, yeah. So you do know a lot about what the general gameplay loop of this game is. You know quite a lot about it. So what is it that's really either appealing to you or really terrifying to you? Yeah, I mean, I I know that it kind of breaks some of the standard rules of video game design. Like, one of the things that I know is that you can intentionally or accidentally, like, kill your vendors and then nothing replaces them. Like you just don't get to have that resource anymore <laughs> and that that's permanent, like that's persistent. Um, and so because I know that, it makes me unsure what other like things that I would assume about how this kind of game is set up, it will actually break. I know there's some tricky stuff with like, I know there's at least one guy who like tricks you into, I think, jumping off a ledge. <laughs> That just kills you. He's like, look what's down there in the pit. And you just jump and you die. So I won't do that because I know about him. But if that, you know, if that's the spirit of these games. I think that's called the online community. <laughs> oh, I know about uh, pl like players, other players online can come into your world. And I think you can control whether or not that happens, but I'm not sure. <laughs> that scares me. I don't like playing anything with online, like no online strangers. No, thank you. Um, and I know also like a lot of it is I think pretty opaque like I'm I'm worried about being able to get my feet under me in these games and partially I mean that in terms of like navigation and where am I going next and keep that straight. I know there's no map and partially I mean that in terms of figuring out how to be an effective sword and shield guy in this world <laughs> okay is that something that scares you um like a bit yeah oh, I mean okay. I, I think that there's a I'm not used to that and I I'm nervous about my ability to figure that out. Okay, I, I'm sure I will, but I, I just did, you know, it's a, it's an anxiety, and I mean, along the lines also of, of like breaking the conventional rules of games. Games I know about Blight Town, which I think, <laughs> I think the thing with Blight Town is that there's some sort of poison in there, and if you get touched with it even once, your permanent health gets cut in half. Like not, it takes off half your health. Like it reduces the total amount of available health you ever have. Okay, so there's definitely been some broken telephone around here. I'm not going to explain anything else to you about okay. this. <laughs> but one thing I will say is that before I played these games, I also heard whispers of Blight Town it would come up on podcasts or would come up on message boards where mm -hmm. people would just refer to Blight Town as, and would kind of describe what was wrong with it, let's say. Because there's frame rate issues in the original, right? That is also That's true. part that of the, it? Okay. Yeah, the frame rate plummets in, in Blighttown. And that, hearing about Blighttown, they, they'd say so many other things about 
Dark Souls that sounded so appealing to me. <laughs> and then hearing about Blight Town made me not want to play it for the longest time. Okay. <laughs> and I was actually gifted this my, by my brother who just sent it to me and said, you had to play this game. Mm -hmm. And that was finally what compelled me to actually play it. Mm -hmm. And even then I had to call him up and be like, okay, but what about Blight Town? <laughs> and he's <laughs> like, oh yeah, it sucks. <laughs> Oh, great. Uh, my next question was going to be, was it that bad when you got there? Uh, I'm not hearing a no. It was bad. It wasn't as bad as I had thought in my mind. Okay. It was bad, though. Okay. Definitely one of the low points. Okay, great. Well, as you'd expect from a place called Blight Town. It does, but none of, nothing in this that's place called, sounds appealing. This that's is, called ludonarrative harmony. This, <laughs> this is a grim, dark world <laughs> in a very real way. Like, nothing is happy here. Like, even if, on that spectrum... You can still go lower okay. <laughs> into Blight Town. <laughs> Great. Uh, and something else you mentioned is that you know a lot about the bosses. Do you, are there any bosses that you remember either from or either from seeing, you know, as you exist online or seeing me fight that I, you know about? So I think, um, I don't know how accurate any of this is. I know there's some guy that's like, okay, his name is something like Master Castigioni or something. <laughs> like. It's like, that's like how the word is shaped, but I don't think that's exactly it. I think I know what you're getting at. Okay. And I think you're in the wrong game. Dang. Okay. He might be blood. I don't know. He's the one of the <laughs> master. Castigione. Okay. We'll, we'll come back next time. Okay. And see. Is that going to be one of my predictions? Actually, you it fight is him? now. Yeah. Will you fight master? <laughs> well, obviously not now. Now I know he's not. Um, I know at one point there's a pair of knights. Like it's two bosses that you fight at the same time. And people either love or hate them. Like I think it's like a notorious fight. Okay. I know there's like a Hydra thing in the water in one of them. I remember that visually. I remember seeing you fight that thing. Okay. I know there's a big dragon guarding a narrow bridge, but you can go under it, but there's skeletons on top. Okay. And if you appear up okay. there, it'll blast you. Okay. Uh, I know there's something called the Gaping Demon. I don't remember <laughs> what it looks like, but I remember seeing the name and being like, no. <laughs> and I remember one of my favorite gaming memories of you fighting that boar early on that I think just turns into a common enemy I'll tell later. you right now, that boar's not a boss. That boar's never a boss. That <laughs> oh, boar's no. just a guy. This boar, there is a boar early on, and we'll talk about it in more detail when Michelle encounters the boar, assuming she gets there. Oh, I'll get there. <laughs> but this is the boar that made me put the game in the garbage. Okay. So Dimitri had fought this thing a bunch of times, and then he's got like some bombs and stuff in his inventory. But, oh, I think also when you die, your inventory doesn't replenish. It's not like you go back in time and you get all your arrows back this or whatever. This is correct. So that scares me also. And so he's like, you know what? I'm going to run around to this spot above where the boar is. I'm going to lure it over. I'm, I'm going to drop. Bomb. I'm going to fireball. I'm going to drop everything I got on this guy. So Dimitri <laughs> runs up to his little ledge and I'm watching. And he just like, the boar runs over. Dimitri drops 100% of his inventory on this boar, misses with everything, falls down and immediately gets trampled to death by this thing. It was like the most Benny Hill shit I have ever seen. It was so good. It was not good. I loved it. It was it was bad news. And that's what compelled me to say I, I'm done with this game. And I took it out of the PlayStation. I put it in the case and I put it in the garbage. Yeah, he did. And then sat back down and looked at me expectantly like I was going to do something about this. <laughs> and then a few hours later, I went and picked it back out of the garbage <laughs> and I put it in. And then I didn't stop playing until I finished it. And that, I think, is the that is the quintessential Dark Souls experience. I don't think many people actually literally put it in the garbage. Mm -hmm. But there's definitely a moment when you want to. Okay. And there's a moment when it clicks. And if you can get to that point, I think you're good to go. But 
I know that point happens at different moments for different people, but it's really about getting to the point, having a breaking point, mm -hmm. and then finding a point where it clicks. And then once you can hit that point, I think you're you're in for a good time. Like your Dark Souls third eye opens and you just understand it all. Yeah. I know you talk about this sometimes when you talk about Into the Breach. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I've definitely played other games where they're incredibly hard and very punishing at the start. And then at some point... It, just what you've said, like things just I always joke about is my my third eye open. I just I could see it all. I understood everything in the whole. But, you know, something changes about your relationship with it. So, yeah, I believe that that is a thing that happens. Yeah. And for me, it did not happen until after that boar was dead. <laughs> you had to go. You had to go through the boar to experience the many boars later on. Yes. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, I think those are kind of the, the bosses that I can remember. I, I guess my biggest thing is like. I remember them all being huge, like physically so much bigger than you that the first time you see any of them, you feel like, how am I ever going to be able to fight this? Like every single one. That's that's the general experience of this game. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And I, I mean, I've alluded to this before, but the, I guess the last big thing that I know about this game is that people freaking worship these games. And and this you have a bit of a hang up about. I yeah. Think. Yeah, uh, I feel a little testy about the, the cult status. I guess I feel like, uh, as, at least in my time sort of following games media and in the corners of it that I move, I'm sure there's like, if you're super into MMOs, probably nobody ever talks about Dark Souls or cares, you know? But in the in the circles that I move in, um, these are kind of upheld as like the pinnacle of good game design. And I think the the couple of things that I've figured out that people really like about them, almost all of them I'm not sure if they are objectively good like game design choices or if they're very contextually appealing to these people because of where they are coming from and the moment in which I think these games emerged. So I know that it they notoriously don't handhold you in any way, whether it's like learning how to fight effectively or, or where to go. Um, and this is a thing, for example, where like I'm not totally convinced that just not telling players how to play the game is inherently a good so I think we're going to have a big discussion about this next time because I think you're I think we really need to define what we mean by a game telling players how to play a game. Sure. Yeah, yeah. That, I think that's, that's a big fair. part of it. And um, we'll get into that a bit later because uh, Miyazaki has some things to say about this. OK, cool. Cool. Yeah. All of this I'm, I'm pretty unsettled in my thoughts about. It's just I have kneeling questions where I hear pretty I, universal praise. I would say you have a hypothesis. I'm skeptical. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I, part of me really does think that people have just been like Stockholm syndromed into thinking these games are good, right? That it like punches you down so many times that by the time you get through it, you've convinced yourself because you have to convince yourself that it was this like good, profound experience that is like the um, the zenith of uh, game design, you know? Like I went through all this because this is the greatest game ever. So do you have any evidence of this? Well, <laughs> or is it just... I guess what I'm asking is like, do you have... Do you think that the people who you hear saying such fond things about these games actually don't believe that or have been tricked into believing that? No, I think they sincerely believe it. I just think... They're delusional. <laughs> I think there's a thing that sometimes happens when you uh, have achieved something at great personal cost that transforms <laughs> how it looks to you. That's that's all I think. <laughs> okay, so we're, the expectations of this game is going to involve great personal cost. Yes, I think it will. Wow. Listen, I've seen you play the these. Stakes are high. Yeah. So, I mean, I don't know, right? Like, we'll see. Um, but yeah, like a big part of it is just that these, these games notoriously like punish you whenever you're sloppy. 
It's always possible to die. You never get so strong in these games that you can move around without worry. Like, I don't think you really get to a point where like, oh, it's just skeletons in this room. I can't really die here. I will say these games do transform you. Not in always the most positive ways as you're playing them. (laughs) Okay. I've seen that. (laughs) And I fear, based on seeing some of your experiences with some of the other games we've played, this might be a we should be in our separate rooms game. I honestly, it might be. I want <laughs> I want to have the right to be frustrated. Absolutely, yeah. <laughs> no, I think that's part of it. Yeah, you know how people will say that a person is like a director's director or a musician's musician. Um, I think Souls games are a game designer's game. Um or or even like a game journalist's game. And and part of that probably about being a little bit inaccessible, a little more challenging than normal at every stage, and a little bit of an ordeal. That's Mm. all I'm saying. Yeah, I mean, and I don't blame this on the game, but I think you're right in the sense that this is the perfect kind of game that would lend itself to the kinds of gatekeeping that you absolutely hate. Right, 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 right. Yeah. And I don't think that's the game's fault. And I think the game is kind of more open than it's often held up to be. Hmm. And and we'll see if that we'll see if that's true. Though I mean, you've you you're not a newbie. No, by any no, means. no, no, no. <laughs> I've played difficult games. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I just I think these are these are like that taken to such an extreme. Yeah, I just I do think it does lend itself to kind of gatekeeping discourse for sure. As really do most games that are known for their difficulty, right? Yeah, like that's kind of th- those things kind of go hand in hand. Yeah, 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 yeah. And there's two sides to the idea of difficulty here, right? Um, There's like my own personal relationship with difficulty and how that's going to affect my experience of playing the game. And then there's like, what use can we say difficulty should play in game design, right? And I want to not conflate those as much as possible. I mean, I talked a fair bit in our episode zero about how I have sort of a bad pattern personally of only wanting to do things that I'm good at immediately (laughs) um, and being really resistant to things that don't come to me really quickly or naturally. And games have been a really important tool for helping me sort of outgrow that that um, pattern that I don't like. You know, that's that's not good. Um, And specifically, everything we've played for the show so far this season has actually sped that up a lot. Like, I, I really feel like I've um, noticed a significant change in this in in okay. how frustrated or intimidated I get. I'm much more calm and much more like, okay, I'll figure this out. I just haven't figured it out yet. So I'm kind of interested to see how that plays out. But it does return to me in moments when I'm frustrated or overwhelmed. Like I do still get spooked um, and pushing past that is still a process. You know, it's not automatic. I bring this up because it's the biggest part of why I haven't already played these games, right? Like there is some stuff in here that really appeals to me, like super deep, super opaque lore that you have to read every item description to get, uh, like weird arcane stuff. Like there, there is a lot in here that I, I think could uh, really be bait for me. But yeah, this is kind of why this is like the final boss of this season, you know? <laughs> um, so yeah, it, it touches into the gamer stuff and just a whole bunch of shit, really. <laughs> Um, but in terms of the role of difficulty in game design, I, I guess, I guess I just don't, don't universally think that, uh, difficult games are better specifically. Is that a, is that a bit of a straw man or do you hear people saying that? Well, I think, I think it is, it is partially a straw man, but it's also partially the, like, uh, subterranean logic behind a lot of the things that I think people like about Dark Mm. Souls. And so... 
again, this is coming from a pretty uninformed perspective because I haven't played it. And I really look forward to coming back with with clearer thoughts on this. But like difficult how like what 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 is it that makes it difficult? Like there are plenty of games that are difficult in a really interesting, provocative way that is fun and addictive and challenging and has a bunch of systems that harmonize together and and are really interesting. And the logic of those things come together like a puzzle. But there are plenty of games that are just hard and and nothing else. Um, so I guess I I guess I need to I, I need to know more about where the difficulty comes from. What's what's the nature of it? How does it work with everything else that's going on before I'm willing to be like, oh, yeah, that's inherently a strength of these games. Right. And this is what we'll talk about next time. Right. Like Once you've played it, you'll have a sense of what is this game trying to do mm-hmm. and does its difficulty allow it to do that better? Yeah. And it's an extra interesting question to me in light of the fact that every time I see anyone playing this game universally it with a lot of the bosses they end up using the cheesiest jankiest strategies so like if part of what you're praising is that the it's these challenging boss fights where you have to really learn and react intelligently to what the bosses are putting out then doesn't that sort of imply that you should be doing sort of a noble uh, combat with (laughs) to be fair are you talking about speed runs because uh, that's, I mean, that's the point of the speed run. Yeah, right? it's, to, it's to figure out the exploits, and that's not just a Dark Souls thing. That's an every game thing. I mean, not to throw you under the bus, but I do. I part of it is also I react. I know this. I know what the boss is going to do, and I react accordingly by getting into a weird spot where you're not falling into the lava, sometimes, but you're up against the wall. <laughs> sometimes you just got to run under their balls and like start poking them. But listen, and. And again, like I feel no shame about that. I feel I feel that that's like totally, totally valid. It just sits in. It just sits weirdly with me sometimes also, in light of. So it's something that applied to the final boss of Dark Souls and the final boss in Sekiro as well, where I went in, and I really struggled at first, and then my goal and my intent was to to cheese them mm-hmm. and to exploit them, and I did that, and it didn't work. And I actually had to learn how to actually <laughs> fight the boss properly. Like, shoot, do I have to learn how to parry? <laughs> and so in a lot of cases, yes, cheese strats will work. But also, they're often more difficult to pull off than actually just having the patience to learn the boss. Okay, okay. But if you don't have that patience, like I don't sometimes, then you just use the exploit strat and actually probably end up wasting more time than otherwise. <laughs> like trying and, to get your weird yeah. trick to work. And yeah, of course, sometimes, yes, there are bosses where you'll just get get them stuck on the geometry or you'll mm-hmm, just be mm-hmm. like underneath them in a certain ways where you're just like poking them in the ass until they die. And that happens in all games. Yeah. But yeah, I wouldn't say that it's a universal thing, but you, but it is something that you get to learn. You get to learn the ways in which this game is a little bit janky and, and learn how to exploit that. And, and that's part of the fun. Okay. I, I think that's fair. I think that's fair. I just, again, I, I, I don't want to sound like I'm um like, I have a clear theory that I'm settled on here. It's more just like, because I feel like every time I hear about these games, it's always with the most glowing of praise. These are just some of the questions that I'm coming in with, <laughs> okay. right? These are like mm-hmm. the places where I feel like more information required, you know? Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And with that, maybe let's take a break and we'll come back and talk a bit more about the history of the games to get you a little bit more information, a little bit more context <laughs> okay. so that you know more of what to expect going in. Great. And we're back to talk a bit about the history of the Soul series. And I think there are some anecdotes that are going to emerge that are really going to resonate with you and maybe put you at ease a bit more. Okay, cool. About these games. 
So the name most commonly associated with these games, the name you've probably heard is Hidetaka Miyazaki, who's yep. the director of the of the Souls game. With FromSoft, right? With From Software, yes. Yeah. The the company that develops them. It's always weird to me that because Miyazaki is also the name of the guy from Studio Ghibli, right? Yeah. But not uh, clearly I'm not suggesting not the they're same the guy. same person, but just no. it, more more than one person in Japan can have the same. I understand that. <laughs> it's just funny to me that the tones of like they're so opposite in terms of like vibe, right? Yeah, I get th- I get that dissonance for sure. <laughs> so Miyazaki's not somebody who ever really aspired to be a game developer growing up. He was he was someone who was actually pretty aimless in his life before joining FromSoft at uh, at the age of twenty nine, and he credits Eco oh as the game that inspired him to actually get into game design. He said that this was the game that awoke him to the possibilities of the medium, and he decided that oh, I want to make these. I want to wow. make a game myself. So at 29, he joins FromSoft as a coder and working on the Armored Core series. And while he's there, he hears about this project that seems to be struggling elsewhere in the studio, this fantasy action RPG called Demon Souls. And Demon Souls had been in development at FromSoft quite before Miyazaki's involvement with it. FromSoft has actually been approached by Sony to make a dark fantasy action RPG. And the producer at Sony, Takeshi Kaji, said he didn't like what kind of we call in the West JRPGs. He didn't okay. like that style of RPG. And he wanted a Japanese developer to make something more in kind of the quote unquote Western RPG style. Okay. So he approaches FromSoft to do to do this game, um, but it's it's not going well. And Miyazaki hears that it's not going well and kind of asks to be reassigned to that project. Hmm. And he realizes, okay, this isn't this already isn't doing well. This is kind of a dream game that I'd like to make. And if I go and I mess it up, who really cares? Whatever, because yeah. it's already <laughs> it's already being seen as a failure. So he's reassigned and and is kind of given control of the game. In, in a sense, changes the history of, of games, at least over the last, you know, 10 years or so. He goes from being a, a programmer on Armored Core to just like, okay, take the helm of this other game in a different genre? Okay, so he started Armored Core and then he worked on other Armored Core sequels and did kind of, and okay, and okay. worked his way up okay. the ladder a bit. All right. But he's also someone, and, and this is something his colleagues talk about, that he kind of comes from an outsider to the games industry, someone who's who was working in an adjacent field before, which... Um, it, from what I've read in Japanese culture, it's kind of it's unconventional to kind of jump okay. companies or jump fields. And so for him to join the studio at 29, which in that case is pretty late, usually you join mm-hmm, a company mm-hmm. right after you graduate. And then within, you know, 10 years, he's the president of the company. This is kind of a remarkable thing. Okay. So he did move up the ladder relatively quickly. So he starts to work on Demon Souls and really put into place his vision for this series, including this challenge, which is at the time a bit unconventional. and. And he knew that, and and Kaji at Sony also knew that, because he mentions quite frequently that at first they never really mentioned that aspect of the game in their presentations <laughs> to Sony writ large. They're like, oh, don't worry about how, how the play is going to be. Yeah, he said he had to be kind of sneaky about it. And he, he did have Kaji support at Sony. He says that Kaji agreed with him that they want to make this game something different, something that really challenged players in a way that they weren't necessarily used to at the time hmm. um, with the with kind of the spate of games that were popular at the time. But they said that if they're too forthright about all the death, about <laughs> death as a kind of a game concept with the marketing people, they would have run a mile. Okay. <laughs> we can't tell them about all the dying. <laughs> right. And and death really is for him one of his core philosophies. And it's the core philosophy of the series. And I think when you hear how he frames what he's trying to do, it might make you feel a little bit better about, about the games. Okay. Because he says that the death in the games are not meant to punish you, but to teach you more about the game. He says, quote, the main concept behind the death system is trial and error. The difficulty is high, but it's always achievable. 
everyone can achieve without all that much technique. All you need to do is learn from your desk how to overcome the difficulties. Hmm. Overcoming challenges by learning so- something in a game is very re- rewarding feeling, and that's what I want to prioritize. Hmm. This um, this reminds me of runs. Yeah, exactly. Like that's that's sort of how run-based games work, right? And that- again, I I really think your kind of into the breach love might come into play here hmm. because it's interesting and and really it is for him it was about capturing that balance like you don't you want the players to die but you don't want to make it frustrating you want them every time they die to understand why they did it and to try to adjust um accordingly hmm. the next time they go through and that needs to be very clear to the player um but initially and as you might expect people didn't get it at first <laughs> sure. with demon souls it actually had a terrible reception when it debuted in a playable form of the tokyo game show and when Kaji is kind of reminiscing about this time, he says that, quote, people were initially excited about the idea of a dark fantasy game, but they were so critical of the gameplay. Many people presumed we were still working on the combat at that stage of development, <laughs> despite it being nearly finished. The truth is Demon's Souls is just not well suited to previews, particularly at shows. Mm. And he goes on to say that you, right, you can't understand its approach in five minutes. And actually only a handful of players finish the demo. Some even put the controller down at the character creation screen, <laughs> which was particularly disheartening. He says. <laughs> I mean, it kind of makes, if you don't sort of know what you're getting, I imagine just being like, oh, this is broken. This is just mm-hmm. so, like, what are you even thinking here? Absolutely. And that's that's kind of how, how it was seen. And Shuhei Yoshida, who at the time, who I think is a name you're familiar with from yeah, Sony. Yeah, yeah, He eventually becomes the president of Sony, I think. But at this time, he's the president of Sony Worldwide Studios. And again, right, Sony is the one who's bankrolling this game mm-hmm. in Japan. And Shuhei Yoshida plays it and decides not to publish it in North America because he actually hates his experience with it. And he, 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 he reminisces about this. And he says that from his personal experience with Demon's Souls, quote, when it was close to final, I spent um, almost two hours playing it. And after two hours, I was still standing at the beginning of the game. I said, <laughs> this is crap. This is an unbelievably bad game. So I put it aside. I love that he especially is like, Americans cannot handle this. <laughs> like we can release it in Japan. Well, they they were already tied to that contract. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. And initially, the sales in Japan were not strong at all. Mm. And so Sony just says, okay, this is, they just kind of said, you know, brushed aside as a potential failure and did put it aside. What happened, though, is in Japan, the few people who did buy it really enjoyed it, or at least some of them enjoyed it. And um, through word of mouth, the popularity of the game grew and grew in Japan. Sales started increasing. And then Atlas saw that sales were increasing, and they decided to get the publishing rights for North America. Hmm. And so Atlas published it in North America, and the North American audience took to it much better. I think they're already a bit primed because they had heard about it coming sure, out of Japan, sure, especially sure, people sure. who were enjoying it. Um, American reviewers tended to like it much more and would and and promoted it. Can you remind me what year this is? Oh, sorry, this is two thousand nine. Okay. Yeah, and it Demon Souls ended up becoming Atlas USA's best selling game ever Whoa. at that point in their you know twenty plus year career. But you bringing up two thousand nine is actually really important. Because as I think you know, and, and this is close to when you started getting back into games, mm-hmm. but I think one of the things that really turned people off was that this is just a game that was so outside of the conventions of the time. Yeah, I'm interested to dig into this because one of the things that I have in my head that I don't know how true it is, is that um, I think part of why I feel like these games appealed to a certain kind of like critic and game person is that this was what you have described as the era of over tutorialization where everything was very handholdy um, and felt very um, accommodating of the player. Yeah. And part of me has always wondered if particularly for game people who have a long enough history with games to have been there 
before that period and experienced when games were more opaque and mm -hmm. also much harder. Like games were shorter but harder in at a certain period. I wonder if this felt like a, a in some ways a positive throwback, but mm -hmm. also just a, a, a refreshing response to that. Yeah, yeah. I think there are two things at play here, uh, which you, which you, and you brought up both of them. So yeah, the one is that at this point, and it's, and it was especially with the move to HD when game development became so much more expensive, and there was this desire to get as big of a market as possible that you mm -hmm. really needed to. I don't want to say dumb down, but make your games as accessible as possible, like beginner friendly. Is that a better way of? Yeah, but I think accessible in a way that really discounts what a potential player could bring to the game. Okay, Adam Sandler accessible, not like sure. <laughs> sure. Right, like kind of lowest common denominator, Okay, really not expecting as much as the games probably could from even the average player who has never picked up a game. And even if you just look at what was, pop what was popular at this time, in 2009, the year that Demon's Souls re was released, by and large, the game that got the most game of the year accolades that year was Uncharted 2. Okay. Um, around this time, right, Call of Duty is also becoming incredibly popular, which has its own kind of level of difficulty, but is also very much about constant rewards okay. right, to the player. Or you have something like an Uncharted 2, this move toward more cinematic games, mm -hmm. games that are incredibly polished, games that really want the player to feel empowered at all moments, right? games that I think are fun, but do something completely different than, okay. than like a Dark Souls, right? So for example, in Uncharted, I think we've talked about this before. You really can't mess up any of the platforming. Right. You just like hit A to jump to the next thing right. without it, having to aim or, or plan or anything. Right. And part of it, I think, is because the, the developers don't want to ruin the, you know, the action movie sequence. <laughs> I will ruin it if you give me the <laughs> chance. <laughs> and so, the, so there's like the illusion of challenge or there's, or there's the illusion that right, maybe you could fail this leap. Right. But really, you can't. But these games were so polished and they looked so much, you know, like movies that they were really, um, they received a lot of acclaim and, and, and in some cases, rightly so. But I think there was also this contingent of people, many of whom, as you say, were probably a bit older than us and remembered really fondly, you know, playing NES games in their teens. Mm -hmm. And when they got a hold of something like a Demon Souls, that nostalgia kicked in and, and they said, okay, this reminds me of what it felt like to play games when I was younger. Right. Right. That kind of challenge. And I don't necessarily think that's fair. I think that these games are much, I think the the Souls games are much more accommodating hmm. than, you know, something like a Ghosts and Goblins. Okay. Um, or even something like some of the early Mega Man games, like a Mega Man 2. I think that's actually probably more unforgiving than than a Souls game. Hmm. But I think for a lot of people is that experience of, okay, I'm, I'm being thrown into this world. I don't have that much information. It's pretty challenging. I need to, I need to figure it out. Right. And the game's not holding my hand. It's not over tutorializing. It's giving, it's telling me what I need to know, but not in a patronizing way. Okay. And I think that's the that brought back a lot of kind of feelings of enjoyment and nostalgic pleasure for people, and mm -hmm. and and again, rightly so, I think. And so when Dark Souls comes out in 2011, um, people I think have already heard about Demon Souls through word of mouth, and there was actually some excitement, and it actually released to pretty good sales hmm. and almost immediate critical acclaim, and then really built again in popularity through even more word of mouth than than Demon Souls. Hmm. And again, that's how I heard about it. I heard it on. People talking about it on a podcast, and it sounded really appealing, except for the Blighttown part. <laughs> but I mean, this is this is the most word of mouth example I think of a game I ever have. Where, right, my brother gave it to me and said, "You right. have to play this," because right. and he had heard it about from somewhere. Right, and it just kind of builds that. Now I'm getting you to passing play it, them. passing it on. <laughs> I think it is something that you kind of inherit. So th 
Which might also explain... I mean, not anymore. I'll say that. (laughs) That is not how it is now, today. I Everyone has... Everyone, people I don't know, have told me to play Dark Souls. Yeah, (laughs) it it is. But I think that's why, especially at the beginning, there was almost this community feeling around the game. Right, right. Because of how it was passed down. Because... It wasn't, it didn't feel like it was force-fed to us through some kind of huge marketing campaign. It was like something that we discovered and, you know, handed off to our friends. That's, you're describing like a cult classic kind of thing. Exactly, right? So that's how it's built. So I think that partly explains why there's so much kind of protectiveness of it Mm -hmm. um, and and why it's upheld and kind of placed on this pedestal so highly and it's so revered. In all of those situations, right, people who are kind of outside that group necessarily find that off-putting. Yeah. <laughs> like, by nature, that is an off-putting thing Calm to down. do. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, that that makes sense. And I definitely have seen that behavior. But also, I know that often from the inside, those people are often right about a lot of the thing's charms. Like, So yeah, I'm, that just makes me more curious about this. Yeah, and then eventually this series just gets so mainstreamed, right? In a relatively short amount of time, you have the publisher of the game saying that it's a piece of crap to <laughs> incredibly mainstream outlets like an IGN giving this game, you know, 9.6 or whatever it, it gave it, like incredibly high scores. Right. And so that's kind of how that's kind of how it it entered the mainstream. Right. To the point now where even people who haven't played the game may even use terms like Soulsborn. I have. Exactly, right? <laughs> Several times. And it has come to describe so many other games that have been influenced by it. Right. Um, even in other genres, right? In, right. Yeah. And and of course, like maybe the other thing you know is that anytime something challenging in any genre or medium comes up, there's always like, oh, it's the Dark Souls of X. Yeah. Now we've got our own, like the Citizen Kane of, of exactly. games. Now movies can be the Dark Souls of movies. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> right. Which is from where this game started, where this series started. It's kind of incredible that that, is, that that has occurred. It's also an interesting update on some of our earlier conversations about how people tried to read games through other like mm-hmm. mediums or other styles. Um, th- now we have one of our own. <laughs> uh, so that that totally makes sense. And I mean, I know um, I know from software also goes on to make uh, more very well received and very strong Dark Souls games. They make Bloodborne, they make Sekiro. All those are very well received and sort of tied to a house style that I think comes is sort of uh, solidifies around around Dark Souls one more or less. Yeah, really, the Demon Souls set the template for the Souls okay. style, like and, the, and really the like the Miyazaki style of games cool. that has come to define From Software for sure. It's interesting to me also that these games manage to mainstream in this way without really watering down their initial formula. Like I feel like with a lot of things that emerge with a really um, special, distinctive sort of structure or thing to offer, as they get a bigger audience and everything, sometimes some of that gets diluted a bit. Mm-hmm. But I haven't really heard people say that around these games. I mean, I think like. OG from software fans would say that the Souls series is a dilution of this game Kingsfield that okay. predates Miyazaki. But, okay, but these games are are really spiritual successors of that game, though they they kind of go their own direction. But that was like a first person dungeon crawling RPG that also had a lot of similar elements, like in terms of the tone of the world okay. and and kind of the opaqueness and the difficulty. Um, but I haven't. Again, I I just don't like the first person gender calling RPGs. So say, I'm just not gonna I, I part of me like wants to go back, but part of me is like that's fine to what, stay in yeah. the past. I can't imagine attempting some of the fights that I've seen from first person. <laughs> yeah, I don't um, think I mean was, I'm sure they're different, but Yeah, and I don't think it was as combat yeah. driven, but but yeah. Doing those those dodge rolls, man. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay. So let's take another quick break and then when we come back, 
let's get you ready to play Dark Souls. Hell yeah. back and for the rest of the show i really want to think about dark souls but reflecting on all the games that michelle has played so far and the experiences that she's had and you know some themes that have emerged over the course of some of the episodes and i want to begin with a little segment called red flag green flag subtitle michelle's report card (laughs) (laughs) no but you know as we've been going i've often been joking as i see you play other games i have often joked about Oh, this is this is a big red flag. Yep, for I've Dark heard Souls. that this a is lot. Gonna, this when you year. you finally get to Dark Souls, this this might be a tendency or a habit that might really get in the way of that experience. Mm-hmm. But I've also seen glimmers of hope. I've seen some green flags. You didn't mention them, <laughs> so I'm going to mention them now. <laughs> okay. But first, the red flags. Dang. So some of these might seem familiar, and I'd also like your own kind of self assessment to see if you agree. I have some guesses as to what the red <laughs> flags will be. I'm less sure about the green flags. And the other thing, hopefully, you'll find some of these helpful because they are kind of clues of right, things to right, think right. about as you're playing that maybe you want to to fix because they will lead to your doom if you continue to do these things. Okay. So the first. Isn't really your fault in any sense. It's just where you started playing games. It's the thing we've already talked about. Your long history of playing games that were over tutorialized and with very direct waypoints. Right. And just kind of coming out of that history. And I think enjoying a lot of games that that use the structure of, you know, go this many meters to find this thing. And then you just follow the arrow to the next thing. And, and that being the gameplay loop. Now, counterpoint. I'm actually pretty good with spatial reasoning. And I do okay with navigating okay, in games without... You're spoiling the green flag. Oh. <laughs> We're starting with the red flags. Okay. You can't green flag yourself in the red flag yes, segment. No. I was going to say that I think this is something that you can easily overcome. Mm-hmm. Especially because of certain games that you've been playing, both for the show and both in your kind of personal, for your own enjoyment in your life. That mm-hmm. you, You've actually moved quite away from that style of game. And I don't think you've actually played one of those in quite a while. It's been a while. And I, I find myself also less interested in them. Like a, a lot of games have come out over the last two or three years that are sort of right up my alley in a lot of measure. Uh, right up that alley, I'll mm. say, that I was like, no, I'm good. Like I didn't play Outer Worlds. I feel like five or six years ago, I would have been all over that. Mm-hmm. It just kind of looked, it looked like I already know what that is. Like I don't need to... I'm good. Mm-hmm. And I mean, in, in some ways, you do have a leg up on people who experience Dark Souls for the first time because you have played all these other games that mm-hmm, mm-hmm. in some ways or another, I think you've played a lot of games that have borrowed from Dark Souls in some way that have been influenced by them, even if, you know, really tangentially. So, you know, any any kind of like faculties that might have been numbed by playing these other <laughs> games that prioritized, you know, I'm not really trashing on these games. They just prioritize certain things over others. Right. Right. And th- these games may prioritize maybe cinematic storytelling mm-hmm. or... You know, or or kind of a d- more directed RPG experience. Yeah. But a lot of them do ask you, you know, to really make use of some of your gaming faculties and not others. And, yeah. But I think you've been playing enough different things that, that this isn't I've really got the whole problem. set. I just yeah. haven't had to use them all at the same time before. Yeah. The other red flags, I think, are more serious. Uh-oh. One, easily flustered. Yep. And your response when getting flustered is just to turn off the game instead of going back and doing reps. Take a break. 
Just take a break. Sometimes I have to just calm down. This is a long ass game. That's what I'm talking about is the shorter thing that prevents me from having to throw the game in the garbage. <laughs> Your throw the game in the garbage and then a couple hours go back and take it back is just a big blow off of the same thing that I vent in smaller bursts by taking breaks when I need no, to. No, but sometimes the break is the whole day. <laughs> that's and, true. And, and that's the thing. This is a long ass game. So it's like, I think you you could persevere with that strategy over but, a long enough time but horizon. Given, given, for example, how long it took to get through Super Metroid. Yeah. Brought to this. That was a year ago. I know. that These all have silver lining. <laughs> Don't give me enough credit to give you enough credit. And what I was going to say is that recently you've picked up Hades, mm-hmm. which is a roguelike. That game's good. And and you picked up, you know, like again, Into the Breach has become kind of one of your favorite games of all time. I'm kind of constantly playing it. Right. Yeah. And so you've been playing these run based games where, you know, you do fail, but then you pick it back up and you get right back and you're and you're doing your rep. So I think you're I think you may there's definitely part of you that if you're hooked into the game, if the game hooks you, you do have the capacity to do that. Even if yeah. you're even if you're frustrated, even if you're flustered. I think the idea of thinking of things in runs has given me a different framework around failure. Right. Mm, mm-hmm. um, like, I really do think that's changed um, how I think about uh, dying or not achieving things in, in games. So, yeah, I that that makes a lot of sense. And now the last. Red but I do still get frustrated. <laughs> <laughs> He's right about that. <laughs> now, the final red flag. And we saw this in your fighting games experience. And we saw this in your Zelda experience. So it, this is this has been pretty. This has been happening recently. Lack of a killer instinct. Oh, yeah. Giving up when there's actually like one hit point left on the boss and being like, well, that's done. Either thinking that you're dead and putting down the controller prematurely. Yep. Or thinking that your opponent is done and not getting in, you know, not maximizing your attacks. Yep. That lack of the killer instinct is really going to bite you in the ass. Okay. So we got to really beat a dead horse. Keep going until that horse is real dead. But yes. Because there are so many times, as someone who is much less patient than you, mm-hmm. that I have encountered this experience where I thought the boss was dead and, you know, did what I thought would be the final hit and then just kind of relaxed ah. <laughs> and had a sliver left and I was done. Oh, no. Because it can happen so fast. Sure. But there is a balance. And I think you can also use this to your advantage because patience is also necessary with these bosses. Okay. Because a mistake I probably made more frequently in in the souls games is thinking i can get in one or two more hits when i can't yes and or, that or like thinking that it only needs one more good hit when that's not the case yeah, yeah. and and then that leading to my demise what and you know going for a hit when i should have backed off and really paying for it and usually dying okay so it's it's really about find, finding that balance but you need a little bit more of the killer instinct okay okay i take that i take that to heart and so now for the green flags one you've kind of already alluded to is that when you're into the game, your ability, your curiosity, your ability to explore and to observe and kind of navigate the space is quite high. Awesome. If you're into it. Mm-hmm. If it's something like a Vice City, you do not, <laughs> you you won't care. Listen, this is not the Vice City episode. <laughs> <laughs> Another green flag. I think you're the perfect candidate for Miyazaki's design philosophy because Ooh. you're very good at learning from your mistakes and you're very good at recognizing patterns hmm. and then applying what you've learned. We saw this in Super Metroid, the first game you played for the show, where bosses would take you two times. Because right. the first time you'd go in and you'd be all flustered and you'd be bouncing around. <laughs> but through that process, you'd learn 
the boss's patterns. Mm -hmm. And then usually the second time you often destroy them. Right. And so I think you're very good at, at kind of being able to do that, being able to kind of take in what the boss is doing. And I think that if that's something that you're good at and you enjoy doing, I think you're going to find this game incredibly, incredibly rewarding. Okay, cool. And we'll, we'll talk about that after you've played it. Hopefully you've had some good experiences. So that's the second green flag. Mm -hmm. I like this segment. We should do one of these <laughs> <laughs> every year. The third green flag that I think you've demonstrated quite a lot through all of our discussions that you, is that you have a really good appreciation of design goals and you have the ability to deal with a lack of polish if you can understand what the underlying principles are. Right. That like gives you so much extra patience. Right. Watching you play a lot of these games and being really generous and gracious with them when maybe they're not acting their best. <laughs> um, be except for Vice City. <laughs> except for Vice City. In games where you can really appreciate what they're trying to do. Right. Yeah. I have so much patience for a game that has a good idea that mm -hmm. is really pursuing that even if that's slightly out of its grasp mm -hmm. in that moment. Yeah. That yeah makes I sense. think so. There's this tweet that I remember um, from last year um, by Derek Yu, who's the Spelunky guy. Right. And this, I think, really captures you as a as, as a player. He says, quote, I feel like elegance and jank awkwardness or lack of polish are just byproducts of one's approach to game design and it's the approach that matters more to players. Jank is often the byproduct of ambitious, complex, and innovative design. It can be unironically good. On the other hand, designers tend to place elegance on a very high pedestal when it can be the result of undesired oversimplification. Right. These days, I would rather keep an inelegant, janky game mechanic that offers lots of interesting, fun possibilities for the player. Players are very forgiving of jank if they appreciate the underlying design goals. The jank may even be considered added character and personality. Along the same lines, they will not appreciate the elegance if they don't appreciate the underlying design goals. A hundred percent. And this this, this tweet, I think, really harkens back to the moment in 2009, right, where games kind of were at the time. Hmm. And people looking for those more challenging, but maybe more imperfect janky games to at least to right. counterbalance the elegance that had been placed on a pedestal. Right, right, right. And I think you're someone who can appreciate that and and... I work with it. I have truly loved some profoundly janky games <laughs> in my day. <laughs> and so my hope is that this is also one of them. Okay. And then green flag number four. Maybe the most potent and powerful one of all. Ooh. Is it that I said I would play it for the show? <laughs> no. It's your general stubbornness combined with your contempt for people who love talking about Dark Souls. Hell yeah. <laughs> I think this is going to get you I'm through. I'm coming back with all the facts so I can tell you exactly what is going on. I think that's what's really going to get you through this game. True. That's true. <laughs> Especially if your hypothesis is proving right and you can be smug about it. Oh, yeah. Oh, boy. You better hope I'm wrong. <laughs> yep. That is a powerful motivator. <laughs> and there's another reason, I guess 11 reasons that I really think you can do this. And that's because you've really been preparing for this, this whole season. This whole season was like my Rocky training montage. I think it's more like your Mega Man experience. Ah. So this is another peek behind the curtains. Before doing the show for real, we did a little practice episode just to see what it would feel like and what the structure would feel like. And we did it with Mega Man 2. Mm -hmm. So Michelle has played Mega Man 2. And she knows now that one of the core principles of Mega Man is that you absorb the powers of all of your defeated opponents <laughs> and use them to conquer the final world and the final boss. Which rules, actually. Yes. Yeah. And I think that's what you're going to experience in real life. Because I think <laughs> okay. you've absorbed the powers, things you've learned from all of the games that we've played for the show, and you're going to be able to use them to conquer 
Dark Souls. Okay. So here's what I think you're going to get from each one. Okay. Some of these, I think, are already things that, you know, you had inside you, but they really just allowed them to blossom. (laughs) So from Super Metroid, I think you've gained the ability to poke and prod at the seams of the map and think spatially in terms of how spaces relate and interconnect. Mm -hmm. From Metal Gear Solid, I think you've learned patience and acquired the ability to survey enemy positions and plot out a strategy before initiating combat. Mm, The view from the box. (laughs) <laughs> if you from a box, will there be a box? No. <laughs> from Link's Awakening, you've gained the ability to navigate a dense map without the benefit of waypoints. Right. From Shadow of the Colossus, you've learned to deal with scale and survival in a lonely world. Aw. From Super Mario 64, you've gained the ability to push at the limits of your moveset and to uncover new possibilities through experimentation, even when the game doesn't explicitly tell you to do it. Okay. I don't remember doing that, but I'm glad that I did. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> From Half-Life, you've gained the ability to master platforming in a game that shouldn't have platforming. <laughs> I'm still is there platforming in this? There is. I've seen it happen. Oh, I just remembered that there is some platforming in this. Did not have platforming. Yeah. Still better than Half-Life's platforming. <laughs> from JRPGs, well, I don't think you really learned anything from JRPGs. Because yeah, I played... learned that remakes <laughs> freaking rule. <laughs> now, you've played so many JRPGs, but your hoarding instincts will serve you well. Great. From fighting games, you've learned how to intimately learn a moveset and understand how to react and adapt to your opponents. And remember the killer instinct. You haven't learned that yet, but it's in the back of your mind. From Grand Theft Auto Vice City, you've learned how to tolerate and understand the jank and use it to your advantage. Okay. (laughs) From Silent Hill, you've acquired the ability to push through even when the game's tone is oppressive and you're scared of what's around the corner. Great. And from Ocarina of Time... You've gained experience with a targeting system and reaction-based 1v1 3D swordplay. Oh, this is good because I like that stuff from Ocarina. Awesome. This is, you're going to see a lot of Ocarina of Time influence, I think, in the battle system. Neat. And so with all those powers combined, I think you're ready to conquer the Dark Souls. Incredible. But first, some predictions. I hope these are harder than your prediction questions usually are because I feel like I know a lot about this going in. Well, I've had some help with these. Mm Mm-hmm. My brothers helped me put some of these together. Oh. So we'll see how you do. There are quite a lot, many rapid fire ones. So let's go through quick. Number one, you should have seen this coming. What's a dark soul? Uh, the uh, the soul that you get when you kill a guy. Who is Smo? Uh, a vendor. Okay. So for this next bunch, I'm just going to read off a list of names and you have to tell me whether or not they're a boss. Okay. Okay. Mm-hmm. Cosmic Grasp. No. Fetid Cavity. Yes, gross. Nido. No. Bed of Chaos. Yes. Monrak's Chair. Uh, yes. Strings. No. Pinwheel. Yes. Eric. No. No, Eric. <laughs> Peter. <laughs> no. Okay. We'll Watch there be an Eric. <laughs> and now just some other rapid fire questions. Okay, ready? Just yes or no. Okay. Will you die by being stabbed? Yes. Will you die by being crushed? Yes. Will you die by being chewed? Yes. Will you join a covenant? Yes. Will you ride a dragon? No. Will you ride a magic carpet? No. Will you meet a talking cat? Yes. Will you be punched by a mushroom? Too specific, yes. <laughs> Will you brush teeth? Oh, this is also too specific. Um, uh, no, but I'm not confident <laughs> in that no. <laughs> Okay, um, we'll give the final tally next time, but uh, I think you did pretty well on these. Oh, really? About all the t- ways that I'm going to die? About 
everything on the <laughs> and yeah and so it really it's up to you whether you get those questions right or wrong oh about boy whether you die. <laughs> okay well, I think that's about it for us. Um, as always, if you enjoyed this episode, you can rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or whatever platform you use to listen. You can also tell a friend. It's super helpful to us. You can find more details about our show and show notes and things we talk about at neverwasagamer.com or follow us on Twitter at neverwasagamer. Yeah, thanks so much for listening. And we'll see you next time when we do something a bit different. Mm-hmm. We're going to give Michelle a little bit more time to go through Dark Souls since it's a really long game. Mercy. So next time, uh, instead, we'll be doing our holiday special. Yeah. Where we'll do a gift exchange. We'll reflect on the season that was. Highs, lows, <laughs> in the middles. We'll do some end of the year awards. Talk about what's next uh, for season two. While uh, Michelle's just toiling away at Dark Souls <laughs> in the background. On her 60 hour plus quest Ugh. to become a gamer.